0: reading corner today I'm thrilled to be welcoming Rich Knight who's an award-winning journalist with a background in current affairs and is currently factual commissioning editor at Radio 4. But of course he's talking to us today because he's the author of a recently published book for children called or titled If I Ran the Country. So first of all a big welcome to Rich. Thanks Vicky. Now, I was reading your author's biography and your qualifications to write for this book. Well, the fact that you um, have a background in current affairs is one thing, but your bio also says that you're the father to two boys who ask a lot of questions. So I'm immediately intrigued to know what you've learned from the questions that they've asked you.
1: (laughs) Well, my boys are now 13 and 9, and the nine-year-old, um, and this might be familiar to lots of parents, his questions are absolutely relentless. Um, the 13-year-old has got to the point now where it's difficult to get anything out of him at all, questions or otherwise. Um, but you know, th- w- when I wrote that in the biography, it was serious in a way because I wrote this book during lockdown at a time when politics had impinged on all our lives in a way that, well, it's an overused word, but was unprecedented. And I think children couldn't miss it. You know, they'd been literally told to go home from school and have their entire lives upended by political decision makers far away from them. And that provoked loads of questions from both my children about whether, you know, there was a real engagement at that point, as I'm sure you'll remember, on the part of all of us, but children included, with how should we be handling this? Is this the right thing to do? What does it mean? Um, do they have the right? Are they wrong? Um and that really was the kind of inciting thought for me about why maybe it'd be a useful exercise to try to explain political decision making to children, because uh whenever you think of the politicians we have now or in the past or in the future, the truth is you know these are difficult balanced trade-offs. And children, I think, do understand that. And it really is possible to take an audience of children, I think, through some quite complex hypothetical decisions and they derive you know useful knowledge from it Mm.
0: what we're talking about here is about our appreciation of children's capability and often when you treat children as capable they rise to that challenge
1: yeah they do they do and it's almost a cliche to say it but I think most of us would recognize that children on the whole do have a pretty sophisticated innate sense of Justice. And I, yeah, that's the word I would use because um, lots of political decisions clearly are very complex, but at the heart of most of them, there is in the end a right and a wrong answer from a moral or justice point of view. And I think children can pretty reliably figure right from wrong when you <laughs> equip them with the facts.
0: Mm. And in a way, then, what your book um, does is it responds to those questions, even though those questions are sort of implicit. They're not directly asked in the book. And I do think that that's one of the most important pedagogic skills for teachers as well, not about asking children questions, but knowing how we respond to their questions and encourage them towards deeper questioning and reflection. That's what your book does so well.
1: i gladly <laughs> well, glad you think so. I mean, I'm not a teacher and um, there were certainly moments when I wondered whether I was getting this right. So in a way, my expertise literally is only that I have some knowledge of politics as a you know, current affairs journalist, but also um, some knowledge of how children think simply through being a parent. And mm. in a way, there were some elements of this, but there's some some territory in this book which I thought is this just too difficult and too complicated? So the chapter on fairness, which we may come to, mm. actually takes you in the end to some seriously deep kind of moral philosophical questions, um, hopefully in a fun and accessible way, but nonetheless, you know, really profound mm. stuff. And I've been amazed. I've done a couple of book events where I've talked about the book to an audience or with an audience of children. i am um, absolutely amazed and actually in a way kind of uplifted by the degree to which those audiences have always absolutely understood exactly where we're going. Mm. And I almost think sort of none of it is too complicated, really, if Mm. you find the right way to express it.
0: Really good. Um, In fact, perhaps we could say that one of the things that you've had to to do for this book is to find the right voice to write in. Yes. Uh, I wonder if that came naturally to you or whether you had to kind of think it through and think about the balance between the seriousness and that, you know, there are jokes in there. It is lighthearted and getting that balance right. Was it straightforward?
1: The most important element of the voice to me was I didn't want to tell the children what to think really about anything. So early on in the book, there's a fairly simple introduction to different types of government that have existed or could exist in the world, um, almost presented as a menu. You know, you choose what you think is the best one. Um, and I've tried to be wholly unjudgmental. So, you know, a dictatorship is presented sort of as a viable option. Now, you know, in a tongue in cheek way, I gently steer the audience away from that. But I say, but if that's where you want to go, if that's who you are, then you know, I'm not here to stop you. Yeah. Um because when you get further into the book and you get to the more politically contentious issues like fairness or equality or equality of opportunity or quality of outcome, or whether you should have a redistributive. Tax system, all those you know, really quite big subjects. Absolutely, it's not my place to tell that audience of children what to think. They have to figure it out for themselves.
0: Mm. It's very nicely done. Everything gets an airing. That's not to say it's completely objective. <laughs> no. So I, the tagline for this book says, "An introduction to politics, where you make the dis- where you make the decisions," and that really. Uh, underpins two intentions behind the book I think it's about information but it's also about agency and it's very clear uh, very clearly laid out there are six sections in the book and I wondered whether we could uh, talk about some of the big themes that underpin each of those sections and one of them that you've already talked about the notion of justice or fairness that seems to be the biggest idea of all that runs completely throughout the book
1: yes because i think ultimately and and, you know we should make really clear for any listeners who haven't twigged i mean the the whole shtick in a way in the book is that it treats the reader as leader of a new imagined country which is a black slate you can do what you want you could be an absolute monarch you could be a democrat you could be a dictator and all the subsequent decisions that flow it's up to you and i'm just here to offer some advice um but fundamentally you do have to choose whether really you're in it for the good of your people or in it for yourself, and I make a assumption that I make a joke out of it many times in the book, but you know if you've decided you're actually trying to do your best for the people who live under whatever regime you've put in place, then the next most important question probably is how to treat everybody fairly, and that's where really the meat of it is, and in a way, the most interesting bit, I think. When I talk to children about the book, it's the bit where I think they are most engaged, partly because those sorts of questions are on the face of it quite easy to answer, but when you drill down, become quite difficult. Um, You know, at the beginning of that chapter, I say, you know, what is fairness? Many people would describe it as treating everybody equally. But, you know, is that right? Mm. Should we treat axe-wielding murderers and kind old ladies the same way? Probably not. And so I get to the thought that maybe being fair is about people getting what they deserve. But even that becomes incredibly fraught. And I suppose, in a way, subtly, I hope, where I get to in that is to encourage children to think about the role of luck, partly, in theirs and everyone else's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Luck plays a huge part in all our lives. And the successful... Are gen- generally less inclined to acknowledge it, but it is there, even in very subtle ways. And how you deal with that without equalizing everybody in a way that is kind of, it would negatively affect everybody um, gets really complicated. And actually, in a funny way, writing all that helped me to think through some of these issues. And for a while after I wrote the book, every news item I heard, every political discussion I heard, I just absolutely it felt like it was. All really about these same questions.
0: Interesting. I mean, in that first section, you do mention, you know, who gets to vote in a democracy and at what age are you considered capable to vote. Now, that's obviously going to be very appealing to children, uh, particularly as you quote one professor who is in favour of children voting from the age of six.
1: Yes, that's David Runciman, who I, I don't name him in the book, but it is him. He's a Cambridge professor and a very eminent chap (laughs) and he has made this argument the thought underlying his argument is that every time the franchise has been extended democracy has been made stronger and also he says when democracies are in trouble extending the franchise has generally helped them recover um and it is clearly true that the one big group of citizens who have no say is children. I think the case for lowering the voting age is pretty easily made.
0: One for the children and their teachers to think about. If we move on to the second section of the book, it's about who are you going to work with? And I wanted to pick up here the vignette uh, that you put in about Abraham Lincoln, because I thought that was very interesting about surrounding yourselves. Or yourself, as a leader, by people who are going to challenge you and not agree with you, to me, that sounds like a really important idea.
1: Yes, and you know I think we all know this to be true that a diversity of opinion will strengthen a decision making process, and yet many of us find it difficult to create that team of diverse opinions, and mm-hmm. partly that's unconscious. we unconsciously recruit people who look and sound a bit like us. All the evidence shows that that's unhelpful and that a diversity of opinion will make a team yield better decisions. And the, the, the truth is, at the time I'd just read, even though it's not a new book, I just read Team of Rivals, which is the great biography of Lincoln. And it is an absolutely great book, which I wholeheartedly recommend to everyone. And he had, in this telling of it anyway, an amazing ability to really foresee exactly how to compose himself and behave himself. In a way that would be just the perfect leadership lesson and get the best out of everyone. So, you know, famously, Lincoln was not expected to win the presidential race, he was considered almost a laughing stock, really, and an absolute outsider at the beginning. But there were several very valid candidates who would have expected to beat him easily. In the end, as we all know, that didn't happen. He won, partly because of a brilliantly clever campaign. He was a brilliantly clever man. Um, and there was great resentment towards him and bitterness, really. On the part of his rivals, all of whom he then immediately hired to be in his cabinet, and and I use it to try to make the point in the book that that is the right thing to do. It also requires great confidence, but also that isn't the whole that isn't the whole deal. After that point, you then have to make sure that you find time to listen to everyone in your team Mm -hmm. and be prepared to accept that you were wrong, give credit where it's due, take blame where it's on you, and there's quite a lot in there about how to conduct yourself and it was partly inspired by reading about this amazing man Mm -hmm. Lincoln but I think some of those lessons and actually quite a lot of the stuff in this book I think is really easily translatable to a classroom setting I don't mean so much for the purposes of teaching although hopefully it is but I mean in terms of how children conduct themselves I mean it's absolutely a valid thing for a child to aspire to do listen to the people around you reflect on their views take them seriously listen respectfully you know be kind be polite all these things are Pretty good rules for all of us to live by I think.
0: Yeah absolutely to aspire to and after all a classroom is just a microcosm of a world because in a classroom unlike many situations that we find ourselves in, ad- uh, in adulthood where we might choose to associate ourselves with certain groups of people a classroom is a group of people that are put together
1: <laughs> regardless
0: yes. and they don't have a say over whether they mixed with those people or not. So it is a sort of microcosm of the wider world. Yes. So I know we're rushing through this book and there's so much in every chapter that we could, or every section that we could talk about, but in part three, which is called, what do you stand for? What I found particularly interesting here was that being a good leader is not about leading for leading's sake. It's not about careerism. I want to be a politician when I grow up. It's why.
1: Yes. Well, in a way, you could say this is the heart of it, I suppose. And this was probably the hardest bit to to, to write or get right. Um, And hopefully I, I did. But it's difficult because, like I said, I absolutely didn't want to tell anyone what to think. So this was about trying to find a way to encourage the reader to reflect on their own view of the world. Refine that view a bit and come to a set of clear principles about you know what they thought was the right way not only to to be and to lead but the right sort of political project to aspire to. I mean, basically, if you're going to be leader of a country, that's one thing you you know you've got there at this point. You've set up your democracy, stroke dictatorship, stroke absolute monarchy, whatever you've chosen. You've designed your flag, composed the national anthem, hired your team. But you know what are you going to do? And It's a bit tricky, that bit, because you find yourself unable to avoid getting into potentially choppy waters here. Um, I try to describe what people mean when they describe themselves as being on the left versus on the right. This is very fraught, because my definition of left and right and yours might not be wholly the same. So I have to talk in quite a broad brush way, I think, really. But broadly, I think it is possible to reflect on the kinds of things that feed into how you perceive yourself and think about the world, whether it's family or culture or the school you go to, or your sense of right and wrong and what you think is fair or isn't. And, you know, I, I describe all kinds of complicated things in that section, which you know, there were moments when I was writing, I thought, this is mad. You know, is any self-respecting child actually going to read about, you know, what communism is, but it's all in there and I've had no complaints. So hopefully it has, has helped. Readers to sort of come to understand what their own political view might be.
0: One of the things that helps is that you have a global perspective. You don't root it in the politics of a particular country, and your examples are taken from around the world where you do include specific examples. And I think that helps.
1: Yes. I mean, I did try really hard for it not to sound like an um, Anglo centric view. And I just, in, in a way, it's, it's freeing and helpful. For it to feel like a sort of both the right, the writer was sitting somewhere above individual national politics.
0: Uh, in part four, we move on to the thorny issue of taxation, uh, which I think so many of us need to have a better un- understanding that this really is a sort of balancing of self interest versus the common good.
1: Yes. I mean, again, this is one of those bits where, uh, as you're writing it, you think, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm trying to explain a tax system to <laughs> an audience of nine to 12 year olds. It's mad. But you can't avoid it because it's so important. And, you know, a huge part of the function of any government is to take our money and choose how to spend it. And as I point out, if we don't give them any, there's not much they can do. And if we give them all of it, um, that's probably not going to make us very happy. So they're looking for somewhere in between. And I try to explain the basic idea of the trade-off involved with tax, and the fact that different countries have made really very different choices about this with very different results. Mm-hmm. And again, I tried to take all the heat out of this because clearly, um, probably not for a child reader, but maybe to their parents, these are the kind of things which uh, you know, one can have very strong opinions about. But I've tried to explain it in a way that makes clear that fundamentally underneath it all is in a way a
0: pretty straightforward choice, really. We all want everything but we don't want to pay for it. You can't have it both ways. So here it is. Think about it. And I was surprised. I mean, I always knew that Sweden had very high uh, levels of taxation. I didn't realise until I read your book that Russia has one of the lowest um, systems of uh, income taxation. I was quite surprised by that. Good to read things that surprise you. And um, then on part five, uh, you in part five, you talk about your place in the world and you pick up some of the big challenges that we're going to face over the coming decades. Climate change is probably well written about for children, but you, you tackle poverty here and also AI and technology. In fact, the three could probably be seen as quite interwoven.
1: I think that's right. I mean, the, this section was really supposed to uh, encourage the child reader to, understand that, you know, whatever they do within their own imagination, we are, you know, a network of nations on one planet, and there are lots of issues, and one could argue all the most important issues have no interest in national borders. Um, so I was trying to explain just a few of the really big issues that actually, if you were to take power now, for real, of a nation imagined otherwise, these are things which are going to be somewhere close to the top of your intray over the next five to 10 years. And I'm also very aware that when you speak to audiences of children, they absolutely understand the pressing nature of the threat of man-made climate change. That is at the top of their agenda. And, you know, I had to address that in this book, I thought. So I just try to explain the just the broad contours of some of these large kind of tectonic forces that are at work in the world. And AI might be to some a less obvious one, but I think if you were embarking on your political leadership career now, it is one of the things which I think will make quite a big difference to how your plans do or don't work in the lives of your population over the next five to 10 years. So I'm just trying to plant some of those big issues in the minds of the readers.
0: Writing for children inevitably has to be optimistic. That's really important. They have to have a sense that they can do something. Um, And that is where we're going with this book. But Because you're dealing with politics, it's really seeding the idea that through politics we can make a big change. But I suppose another side of this is to do with commerce and industry and who holds the money. And that might not be the politician that has all of the money. (laughs) We don't really go there in this book, do we?
1: I do make it really clear at a couple of points in the book that political power is only one kind of power. Mm. And if you want to make change in the world for good oil, then politics is only one route. And you could argue, in many cases, not even the most important route. I mean, there are CEOs of large tech companies who have probably made a greater difference to the individual lives of many of us than any backbench MP or even potentially national leader. So I do acknowledge that in the arts, in science, in technology, in all sorts of spheres, one can clearly aspire to make a really big difference. And I also make the point that this is a book about, you know, a child who's somehow taken control of a whole nation, which is a really impressive thing for them to have done if a bit weird. But I do sort of make the point that there are other kinds of even political power you might wield, which could be your school council. It could be lo- lobbying your local council. It could just be instituting a better morning routine in your own house. And in a way, I hope some of the issues that children may have been encouraged to think about through reading this book could apply equally in all those spheres Mm -hmm. from the largest to the smallest. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I absolutely agree with you that political power is only one kind of power, for sure. And probably in our culture, in this country at least, we attribute more power to politicians than they deserve. And there are many other forces at work, clearly, in our culture, which make a big difference to how we live. Mm
0: -hmm. Including teachers, I say, for our listeners. They are a big power in children's lives and can be a really big force for for good not necessarily but they can be I suppose I wanted to round up really by going back to your career in radio which is a listening medium and I've always found that with radio you have to give it your attention in a way that perhaps you don't in the same way with visual media Uh, and I wondered whether there are any connections between that and books and reading
1: Fundamentally, radio is about words. Often it's about sound and creating pictures in the mind of the listener. And I've worked in radio for 20 years in different ways, from daily news programmes like today to documentary making to the job I'm in now, which is commissioning factual programmes for Radio 4. But at the heart of all of it is the word, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. You know, a perfect radio script is a beautiful thing. So there is certainly a link there that writing books and editing radio scripts and thinking about how to create vivid images through words, there's clearly a strong connection there. Mm. And I think people who are good at radio probably do have books in them on the whole.
0: (laughs) Well, you're clearly good at both of them. And I really hope that lots of teachers, as well as children, rush out to buy uh, copies of your book And thank you so much for joining me in The Reading Corner today.
1: Thanks, Nikki. It was really lovely to see you.
0: In The Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in The Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.